From a fundamental biophysical perspective, both prehistoric human evolution and the course of history can be seen as the quest for controlling greater stores and flows of more concentrated and more versatile forms of energy and converting them in more affordable ways at lower costs and with higher efficiencies into heat, light, and motion. Nat, we are back with another great episode of Made You Think. We are back, and it has been lovely to see all of you fine people still subscribed and hanging out after our year-and-a-half-long hiatus. We are very happy to be back here with you. Uh, I've gotten a lot of nice like emails and tweets from people who are excited we're doing this again. Have you been getting that too, Jim? Yeah, li- likewise. Yep. Yeah, people are uh, you know super supportive, and um, it's so cool to see people sticking with it, and actually new people kind of popping into the, into the Made You Think uh, cult. MYT cult, yeah. hashtag MYT cult, <laughs> uh, in between. Like I, I've met a bunch of people uh, through you know DMs or, or just tweets like who discovered us during the hiatus, which is kind of cool. Yeah, super cool. Like, so I, I'm the, really it's happy the secret, that... It's the secret growth hack to growing a podcast. Go on, uh, <laughs> just go don't on a year and a half. anything hiatus. for a year and a half. Exactly, yeah. yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I'm uh, I'm working on growing up my YouTube channel right now. So yep. it's Ned Lyson on YouTube for everyone who's not already subscribed. But uh, so I'm like reading all of this stuff about, you know, growing a YouTube channel and, you know, what works and what doesn't. And I'm just having this funny kind of deja vu or like uh, inquisitiveness, I guess, where all of the advice on growing a podcast is like, oh, you should do short episodes and you should do it, you know, once or twice a week and you want to put out uh, more content or whatever. And I'm seeing similar stuff with YouTube, but then it's like, well, Neil and I didn't publish a podcast for a year and a half. And we actually like kind of grew in that time. So like how much of this advice is really true? (laughs) Yeah. And it's definitely not short episodes that we we do. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, that type of advice is like, I mean, it's generalized and yeah, it also depends what the purpose is, right? Like, That's uh, right. I met someone recently who does, um, like helps, I guess, companies create podcasts. And I think the KPI or like the, the metric that they're optimizing for is sales or, you know, new customer meetings and that type of stuff. And it's just, it's a totally different way of viewing a podcast than what we're doing here. Definitely. Uh, and, and I guess both work, right? Like their way is to get more leads and, um, you know, and ours is, that's not, that's not really why <laughs> I don't even know why. We're doing this. <laughs> yeah, what fun. is our goal here? Yeah. Excuse for us to hang out on a yeah, fixed exactly. schedule pretty much. Exactly. It's, it's funny. I feel like if you have, uh, friends who are kind of like entrepreneurial and ambitious, pretty much the only reliable way to spend consistent time with them is to work on something together. It's like, a great point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you don't have something like that, fixing time into the schedule is just very hard to consistently carve out uh, time together, which sounds, I don't know, it sounds worse when I say it than when I'm thinking about it in my <laughs> head, but it's, it's good motivation to like team up with people on things. It's like, oh, you know, you could uh, like, I was, I'm, I'm announcing something in a couple of weeks and it's like, oh, you could have, uh, maybe made more money doing that on your own. It's like, yeah, but like, I want to hang out with these other people and do it with them. Right? Yep. <laughs> like, I think that's part of it too, is like you end up wanting to work with certain people and it's like, well, you like the person and then you end up wanting to do something with them and you kind of figure out what that, you know, what that thing is. Exactly. Um, yeah. But it, it does make it more fun, but it, it is also hard to, uh, to, especially as you said, like ambitious entrepreneurial people, it, 
on one hand, yeah, it sounds weird when you say that out loud, but it's so true. Like you just look around and you see it. it it's so it happens all the time. People are busy, busy, yeah. busy. And especially now that like people are, not, I mean, not, this isn't true for everybody, but like, we're not in the same city and it's, you know, it's like, it's, it, it's much harder to, uh, like, yeah, we can schedule a zoom call to catch up. Then we're like, we might as well just record it and post that on the, <laughs> feed. might as well just share our hangout with everyone. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. Here everyone is. And we don't really censor ourselves. I don't know. I can't, I can't really remember a time we've like, I mean, we have maybe cut some stuff out, but very rarely. I don't yeah, I can't, we'll, I can't we'll actually think only, of an example. Yeah. Have we ever like, I don't think we've ever done a serious cut. If we, yeah. I mean, if one of us goes to the bathroom or something, we cut that. Yeah. But you guys don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Just oh. yelling down the hallway <laughs> from the bathroom. <laughs> Some pepper stuff, maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in the early days. In the early in the days. early days. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When Pepper would like lose it in an ambulance <laughs> or something. Yeah. Yep. I think we cut those. <laughs> um, all right. So the uh, the book we're covering today, if you didn't get it from the your title or the quote, uh, is Energy and Civilization by Vaclav Smil. Is that how you say his name? I believe that is correct. Or it, it might even be a soft C like Vaclav. Oh, okay. It's yeah. like Icelandic, I want to say. It, and it could be Schmil too. I, you know, we're just going to look this up. <laughs> I should have looked this up before. I'm pretty sure we like never remember to look this up beforehand. Czech Canadian. Interesting. Huh. But they don't have, they don't have a, oh, Va, oh, it's like a T, Vatslav. Vatslav oh, and Schmil. Interesting. Anyway, I, uh, I know how I found this book. How did you find this book, Neil? Uh, I think we, we I, independently recommended it to each other for an episode, basically. Yeah. Well, I think I forget where exactly. I know that I had seen like Bill Gates say something about this book at one yeah. point. Uh, I think that may be where I, I heard of it. And then I, I know I'd seen like tweets here and there from people who had read the book. Right. And um, I actually read a book a few months ago called The Prize uh, by Daniel Jurgen, I think is the author's name. Um, and he quotes this book, actually. So oh, uh, cool. he quotes or he quotes this author. I don't know if he quotes the book, but uh, I guess he's written this author's definitely written other stuff about energy. It's kind of his thing. So um, that book is, is about like the history of oil. Uh, and he wrote a follow-up about renewable energy and where it's going. And I'm, I want to read that book. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, but the prize is like all about fossil fuels, but mainly about oil. And it's a fascinating book. And he mentions, I believe, I, I don't know if he mentions this book in particular, but he mentions the author and, and that like brought it back to the kind of forefront of my mind of thinking, okay, I need to read this one soon. Nice. That one's like narrative yeah. nonfiction. That's almost like... Um, crap what's the banana book you know you know which one i'm talking about oh, the fish, yeah, ate the whale. The fish that ate the whale yeah oh, such yep. a good book <laughs> yeah it's kind of written in that style um i mean it's not i wouldn't say it's as good as that it's like one notch below but it's still very good uh nice. but it's not like this like this is not a narrative nonfiction in that same sense this is more how would you describe this i'd say this is like almost, almost textbooky, like textbook. but somewhat yeah. but it's but it's also it is textbooky but he has like he uses the word i throughout the book right like he it's right, in first right. person in many areas of the book so yeah it's in between a textbook and a uh more narrative book because yeah. you know this it's it's somewhere in the robert greenest sphere of information density i would say yeah yep. uh, it's it took me a while <laughs> i'm glad we waited like three to four weeks between yeah 
it's like a, <laughs> it's not a fast read. And if, no. I feel like it is one of those where if you, if you sped through it, it would, you would just like lose so much of it. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I found it one from Bill Gates recommendation. I think Gates said that smell is his favorite writer, his favorite author. And he's like, he reads every single book that he publishes. And so when I saw that, I thought, okay, this seems like somebody who we should check out. And then, Taylor Pearson, who joined for our Bitcoin episode back in the day, he was hosting a book club here in Austin for a little while. And so we read this for that book club. And that was oh, a lot of fun. awesome. Yeah. 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 No, it's, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really like from a big picture perspective, I have a feeling the episode is going to be more interesting than the book. Uh, I'll just make a bold prediction, <laughs> but uh, no, because like, so I come at the book from two angles. Like one, I think the ener- the world of energy is just fascinating in general. And then the second thing is that, so my background is as a chemical engineer and a lot of the stuff that he talks about here uh, is basically thermodynamics. And that's like the main, the only real part of chemical engineering I really enjoyed, at least in school. Uh, (laughs) Just, just being very, just being very blunt. Like most of the chemi uh, curriculum was not that interesting to me, but the thermo part was really interesting, which is basically the study of energy and the transformation of energy. Uh, And that's what he's talking about throughout the book. So you know, for me, I think it was, really, it was very interesting from that perspective. But um, I think the main value of this book, which was encapsulated in that beginning quote uh, that we did in the episode, is that the study of energy is basically the study of humanity and like the progress of humanity and, and all the things that, I mean, I think there's going to be tie-ins in this episode from uh, Sapiens and um, into other things we've done, even scale. Um, I think the, the previous episode, there's there's definitely tie-ins. So uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think the big picture of like the journey of of the sort of energy part of humanity, um, that's where like the really interesting discussion is. He goes into, we were talking about a cross between textbook and narrative nonfiction. Like he does get very deep into the numbers and like, I mean, you know, there's tables of <laughs> of like different energy. He, goes, uh, in. he yeah. goes very, very deep. I mean, you don't need all of that for the kind of understanding the big picture and seeing it. But I mean, I think he is an academic. So maybe... Uh, just out of habit, right? That's like something you'd include in a, in a paper. Um, and he put it in here and I guess, you know, why not? It's, it's there. You can skip it if you don't, (laughs) if you don't need it. Um, but yeah, I think the big picture was where the real interest was not in like the specific energy equations of, uh, you know, feedstock for, for animals or something. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, and I, I think that the, uh, I mean, the thesis of the book, which you laid out in the opening quote is really interesting, which is, that pretty much like the story of the history of civilization is the story of humans being able to harness more and more energy. And it's just a very interesting lens to look at the world through of, okay, you know, like wars and like living in different locations and technological development and so many things farming are, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like so many things are either driven by or are driving are like, never ending quest for greater, greater harnessing of energy and kind of like our capacity as humans is a function of the amount of energy we can consume and expend, uh, through like secondary means beyond just what our body can right do. Right. So we, we had that example from scale where what is it? The normal human only needs like 60 watts of electricity basically in their body, which is like a, a light bulb. 
Um, yeah, yep. Yeah. But we're now like on average, we're consuming like 10 times or 10 or 30 times that at any one point in time, just between devices that we're running and like all these other things. Uh, and I think it ties in really nicely with this book where it's like, all right, what is that story? You know, how did we go from just using our normal built in amount of energy to harnessing more and more? And like, what did that mean for our effect on technology, civilization, the world around us, like each other? Uh, it's a very interesting way to look at history. And uh, have you read the, I think it's the story of philosophy? No, I haven't, but that sounds it's, really uh, interesting. It's pretty good. It's by Will, I can't remember if it's by Will and Ariel or just Will Durant. Um, like famous. Oh, is, okay. I've heard of this book. I have not read it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's, it's just interesting because it's like, it's the history of philosophy, but almost told as a narrative and how one philosopher influenced the next one and how mm -hmm. that like coincided with major historical events, uh, basically starting with Aristotle um, and or Socrates, I guess, until now. And so it's kind of a similar where it's like he's telling the story of civilization through philosophy and Smill is telling the story of civilization through energy. Yep. So yeah, and I think I like, it's also the limit, like one addition to what you had said is it's, it's also like the limit to, to growth, essentially, right? It's like at each stage that right. he's talking about, like the max growth was the amount of energy that could be harnessed was basically the, the limiting variable. Um, like even with farming and with, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, well, fossil fuel era kind of changed a lot of it because you could now harness non, well, it is still derived from the sun, but not like in the immediate, right? Like not, it wasn't derived yesterday from the sun It's derived like millions of years ago, uh, yeah. from the sun. But yeah, I mean, we'll get into all that, but the, um, yeah, the energy, like looking at it, using energy as like the lens through which you view, uh, history is kind of what he's doing throughout the, the book here. Yeah. Philosophy one sounds interesting. I'll have to check that yeah, out. Yeah. That could be a good one to do sometime too. It's, yeah. it's another fairly dense book. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Will, Will and Ariel Durant write like incredible books, but some of them are pretty tough i mean i would do uh oh gosh what is it it's like the lessons of history i think oh That's yeah i've heard of that one i haven't you know i haven't read anything by them really? uh yeah i know it's been like i think i have multiple books of theirs on my list but uh haven't gotten yeah i haven't read any of them yeah lessons of history is phenomenal i would that would be a good one for us to do at some point is it is it also dense no, it's short. <laughs> Ooh, okay, it's nice. like yeah. they, they wrote they wrote all of these crazy long history books throughout their career. And then later they wrote this like nice, short, digestible, like from writing all these history books. Here are the things that we've learned are like immutable laws of history. So I feel like that's the one I hear about most, too. Probably because so that's the one the that, the most, that most people can actually get through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Including uh. myself. <laughs> Uh, All right. Should we dive into some of the stuff in the book? Let's dive in. Um, hop into this energy and prehistory section. Yeah, let's let's do that. Yeah. So, I mean, right, the first thing that jumps out to me here that's pretty neat is humans are almost designed to be energy conservators because he points out right off the bat that human walking is about four times as efficient as quadrupedal and bipedal mm, yeah. walking in chimps. So, you know, to cover a set distance, we only need a quarter of as much energy as a chimp walking, um, which is like kind of crazy, right? It's like, oh, yeah, it, well, it also it's a unique advantage in that that's how we were. Uh, I know we talked about this in a, in a uh, previous episode, but it was right. 
that's one of the unique advantages for human hunting. Like we're not faster, you know, than a cheetah or a lion, right? Like we can't outrun, uh, you know, too many animals really, but, uh, we can outlast them. Like we can, can outjog them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I, that must've been in sapiens, I think where yeah. it's like humans are kind of unique in our ability to dissipate heat in yep. that we yep. can basically jog forever if we're in good shape. And so even a horse or something we can run down if we have, if, as long as we can keep tracking it, we can eventually exhaust it. There's all these other animals that you hear about being so fast. They're very fast over short distances, but they, they can't uh, regulate heat the way we can. Like sweating is a massive advantage that yep. I don't think any other animal can sweat and dissipate heat the way we can. I'm going to fact check myself. Well, on and that. then you combine that with what we just talked about with uh, using less energy, like the way we walk, right. our gait is, is so much more energy efficient. And then you get, you know, that kind of adds to the endurance factor. It probably factors into that as well. Like uh, the fact that we don't use as much energy means we can just keep going where they would run out of energy. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing to take a step back that I thought was crazy, but when I thought about it and looked it up, I was like, Oh, that actually is a hundred percent true. Um, there's a quote from Richard Feynman early on in the Mm -hmm. book, uh, where he said, it is important to realize that in physics today, we have no knowledge of what energy is. We do not have a picture that energy comes in little blobs of a definite amount. Um, and then, I think, uh, I think, I don't know if this is part of the, uh, the Feynman quote, but it says, what we do know is that all matter is energy at rest, that energy manifests itself in a multitude of ways and that these distinct energy forms are linked by numerous conversions. So it's like that, that's kind of fascinating if you really think about it, right? So everything is energy, uh, right? Equals MC squared. Right. Uh, and energy is so important to everything, but we don't really like, it's not like a molecule, right? That like you can, you know, it's very hard to, to place like what it actually is. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of wild if you think about it, right? It's like, you're saying that this, everything is this thing, but we don't know what the, what the thing is, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Uh, Super wild. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By anyway, way, I just, I, before we kept moving on, I wanted to, oh, I just wanted to bring that one out because I forgot to say No, that. no. I think it's great. Uh, and I, I fact-checked myself while you were bringing that up. And it's true. Humans are the only animal that sweats. Wow. It's super interesting. That's Even a chimps. wild adaptation if you think about it. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> all pretty much all cooling mammals pant in one way right. or another, yep. including chimps. So uh, chimps and gorillas relative. both dump body heat by panting. I'm reading this PRI.org article. If anyone else wants to check it out, I'll, I'll include it in the show notes. But um, we're really the only ones who can uh, secrete water to cool ourselves down. And there's actually, uh, uh, Smill mentions it in the book too, that um, a lot of animals lose water to cool themselves down. It's actually part of what panting is doing is it's getting rid of water to, to lose heat. Yeah. Um, and some of the most efficient other animals like horses lose water at a hundred grams per meter squared, an hourly rate of a hundred grams per meter squared of their skin. And camels can lose up to 250 grams per meter squared, but, uh, humans can lose water at 500 grams per meter squared. Wow. So five times as much as horses with peak rates of two kilograms per hour. You know what's interesting? I wonder if like the success of an endurance athlete is tied to their sweat rate. Like I wonder, you know, like I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. 
like a, a long distance runner or, uh, you know, someone who's like in the, in a uh, professional, like long distance biker or something that's well, gotta be a, part of it. Yeah. I mean, a big part of what I learned doing the marathon training was that there's kind of this sweet spot for your heart rate where if you can keep it in there, you can basically just keep sweating until you get so dehydrated that you have to stop. Um, and you don't really get more tired. You don't feel like you need to breathe any heavier. You're just like, you're breathing pretty naturally and you're just running. And a lot of your success as an endurance athlete is how fast that pace is for you. And you can, you can increase that pace primarily through like high intensity aerobic activity. So like doing sprints and like forcing yourself to push the pace to an uncomfortable rate on longer runs. But like everyone sort of got that pace that they can move at a sustained rate at without uh, needing to pant to cool down. Right. It's like there's sort of this like panting threshold in running that everyone's body is attuned to. And like for a lot of people, it's basically walking, right? As soon as they start jogging, they're going to be at their panting threshold. But like through a certain amount of uh, training for it, I basically got mine to like seven-ish miles per hour. And so that's like a pretty solid jog. And then I can like do that for the whole marathon. But if I went up to like 7.5, after doing that for 25 minutes, I'd be panting and like tired out. It's crazy how like small of a threshold it might be. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you can imagine that like indigenous people who are out running like half marathon to a marathon every day, they can probably get up to like 10 miles an hour and just keep going without panting. Um, yeah. Especially if that's how you're like getting your food and the, oh, <laughs> the <absolutely>. motivation. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to starve otherwise. So yep. you're going to get really good at running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there's, there's also got to be an element here of um, surface area to weight ratio. Yeah. Because and this is something that was talked about in scale, which is, you know, surface area scales linearly with size, but um, mass and volume scale, scale cubically. And so if you're really overweight, you have a much higher mass and volume for not much more surface area, which means your body can create a lot more heat because there's just like more of you, but you don't have as much space to dissipate that heat because you have a lower surface area to mass ratio. Whereas if you're really lean, you have a greater surface area to dissipate the heat through, through sweating. Um, and you'll, you should be able to keep yourself quite a bit cooler just by being leaner and having a lower mass to surface area ratio. That's kind of an interesting way to think Makes about sense. efficiency there too. It also explains why like all those marathon runners at the Olympics are, they look, you know, gaunt. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes be. sense. Yeah. And I guess there's also a whole weight, uh, angle to it too. You're just carrying less weight, uh, right. right. Being smaller, like as small as you can get. Uh, but there's probably a ideal, like you, I don't know. There's probably like an ideal, like you can't be too small to, to, to yeah, uh, yeah. You need to have, have enough fat to keep the machine going. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I guess like a sprinter versus a marathon runner's physique are very, very, very different. different. Yeah. yeah. There, there's uh, just so many cool things here that like make humans really special. It's yeah. compared to other things. It's like, uh, what are some of the other ones here? Well, it's just very, it's wild. Like the adaptations, like we are the ultimate, I mean, definitely the ultimate generalist, even just you look at like what we can eat. Right. And like yeah. stay alive on not saying like what's ideal or what's not ideal, but, uh, like we can stay alive on a lot of like a huge variety of foods. Which oh, is, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, 
Yeah. And then the whole, the sweating adaptation, I had no idea we were the only animal that sweat. Yeah. The sweating is super cool. Um, there was something here with food too, that I'm trying to find. I have a lot of notes from this book. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I think third on my, like using Readwise now. So I can yeah, see how number many highlights. highlights. Yep. I think it's third. I think laws of human nature was ahead of it. And then I forget what the other one was. I'll look. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, um, uh, Oh yeah. So there's this other thing where I guess, something else that we're special about is the amount of temporary hydration we can endure uh, or dehydration we can endure. So I guess a lot of animals can't get too dehydrated or they just go into heat shock a lot easier. We can function much better being dehydrated than other animals. So that's kind of neat. And this is the other thing that was in that PCI article I was reading off of before. It seems like a lot of this was probably a evolutionary adaptation to let us hunt in the middle of the day in Africa, right? Yeah. It's like if lions and shit can't go out and under the beating sun in the middle of the day to hunt, us being able to is a huge advantage, right? Yeah. Like, because we can, you <laughs> and know, we don't get, have to compete with them. But, exactly, we don't have to yeah. compete with them, right? We can, you know, get like really like dark sun protective skin, something that basically no other animal has. We can sweat to lose water. We can run basically forever. It's like, even though we don't have any of the claws or teeth, we're sort of the ultimate predator and just our ability to endure combined with even really rudimentary tool making. Yeah. Yeah. And we have like the widest this is like a human brag session, but it's okay. Uh, we should do these more often as a, as a species. We're all um, humans. We can all appreciate yeah, exactly. how awesome I don't, we are. Sorry to any dogs listening to this or <laughs> other animals. Sorry. We're just better. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, we have the widest number of like, or widest variety of conditions that we can also survive in. Like people survive yeah. in the Arctic, right? And like, I mean, it's just insane when you think about like the number of climates So like, you throw a lion into one of those, right? Or not just a lion, but almost any animal you throw into like a climate that's very different from what it's used to um, or into, uh, into a situation that they're not kind of evolved to, to handle uh, or like a niche that, uh, that they're just not built for. And they'll probably, you know, not be able to make it, but I don't know. Humans just can figure. And part of it, I mean, it's so hard to figure out like what causes what, like, was it, was it the adaptation that allowed us to hunt, which led to the big brains later? Right. Like, because Mm -hmm. I mean, there is that connection to eating meat and uh, the large brain, you know, development of large brains that they say is, I mean, I don't know if that's proven or not. Uh, I think I forget where we read that, but that was in one of the books. I think it was Uh, in here actually. Some book somewhere. Uh, (laughs) It's hard to keep them all straight anymore. Exactly. Um, but yeah, there's like that whole part. And then, you know, did that like, you know, it's kind of like hard to keep straight, like what lead, what led to what, but um, yeah, it's, it's humans are amazing. Yeah. Well, and there's Great. kind of this funny, oh, I guess it's not funny, but sort of unfortunate or interesting. <laughs> That's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. I, well, it's just like, we're so good that we basically made every um, non-predator megafauna extinct, no matter where we showed up. Right. Like he, he mentions here that uh, late Pleistocene hunters uh, may have become so skillful that uh, hunting was largely or even completely responsible for the rapid disappearance of basically all of the late Paleolithic megafauna. So any animal with a body mass greater than 50 kilograms, like there's, I don't know if Is, this would be a great time for us. To, I don't know if that's proven though. 
I feel I think like that's it, a theory. It, there could be yeah, other think, reasons too. I mean, it, it absolutely contributed. It would be shocking if it didn't. If it didn't contribute to it. Um, but yeah, but I, I don't even know if that believe was... it. I mean, you hear about what happened with like the Buffalo and stuff in the U.S. when people started yeah. coming over. It's Although like, you could say before that, right? The Native Americans kept them there for a oh, long a time. Yeah, so it's it's not management. all humans, uh, right? Right. Or like that. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how long were the Native Americans there before hunting uh, buffalo? Was it like thousands of years? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate on this. I, the The last date I heard was like thirteen thousand years. I know we yeah, found so. some uh some like remnant tools from 13 or 16,000 years ago wow. but i think there's like a lot of debate about this it's sort of like the whole gobekli tepe like was there a big flood like that whole ongoing debate about what yep. exactly happened in that i can't remember if it's i think it's like 16,000 years ago 13,000 bc but we have to fact check that it's like what exactly happened around that period because there's a lot of weird stuff that lines up then and climate um, stuff too yeah, yeah. I, I guess what's the theory that there might have been like an asteroid that hit somewhere in the Arctic that melted a huge glacier that then basically flooded like almost everywhere. And that was um, that's what led to like the flood the consistent flood. The consistent uh, flood story. myth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that you see in so many different societies. I mean, like even Plato was writing about like a flood myth in yeah. um Republic. It's like it's kind of all over. There's a so, flood myth in like ancient uh, Hinduism stuff too, which is wild because that's a whole other yeah, part of the world. And you have the same Christianity. Same story. Yeah, there's like some, I guess some like drawings or images or something depicting it in like South America, or I could be making that one up. I know that there's some. <laughs> there's like it, it shows up in a lot of places. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just like I mean the megafauna one. It wouldn't surprise me because that just well we'll get into this, but like the energy density of that you know make one kill you probably feed your your clan for yeah you're good to go months <laughs> um, yeah it's like the equivalent of uh you know like you you make a massive sale right and your like company is cash flow set for for a while um, right right it's the same idea right but it's like i could see i could definitely so on one hand i can definitely see humans if they see like you know a herd of these megafauna and they're easy enough to kill you're like okay let's just go nuts on this we're not we're not touching any other kind of food like this is yeah. all we're gonna be going after so i could well, see that on one hand right like we're all wired that way too <laughs> i mean that's such a crazy thing about how much more energy efficient hunting was compared to gathering oh yes let's talk about this that is yeah, yeah. so see. i i think on one episode you and i when carnivore was like just coming up uh right. i remember we talked about it and we we're like it doesn't make sense and then like I think you or I think I think it was you. I don't know if I, if it wasn't you. Correct me, um, but I think you had tweeted at one point. You were saying that like maybe the ability to eat other things other than meat was like an adaptation for what happened between kills or like, like between hunts, and like yeah. you could survive for longer if you could eat these other things, but you were still going after the the kill like the meat. Um, and I don't know if that's true, but like the the hunting part. It, it is incredible when you look at the energy density, like how much, how much more energy there is uh, in just animals versus, I mean, he has that whole table, right. With like the, the low density uh, fruits and vegetables, right. And basically anything that's not a grain was just, it was very hard to survive just on that. Yeah. If you're like picking berries or something. Yeah. Like, he has like the prickly pear example that he gives. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, do you, I don't have that in front of me. Do you have it? Uh, I have it somewhere here. Um, is that what you were looking for? 
Uh, it just something like that effect. I've got the notes on the energy oh, content it. I got of like it. meat, but yeah, go ahead. Yep, I got it. Yeah, so um, it's talking about, for example, the pre-Hispanic inhabitants of the basin of Mexico always ate plenty of prickly pears, which were easy to gather from the many species of cacti. But as with most fruits, pears pulp is overwhelmingly about 88% water with less than 10% carbohydrates, 2% protein, and 0.5% lipids, and has an energy density of just 1.7 megajoules per kilogram. This means that even a small woman surviving only on carbohydrates of cactus pears, assuming unrealistically virtually no need for the other macronutrients, would have to eat 5 kilograms of this fruit every day. But she could get the same amount of energy from only about 650 grams of corn of ground corn consumed as tortillas. Yeah, that's I mean, that's like that's just grain to fruit. But right. Yeah, it's, and then you add in can meat, you imagine I mean, eating five kilograms of a fruit. <laughs> well, this was sort of like a big thing about why we were able to or supposedly why we were able to develop such large brains. If you, it's like chimps need to eat for hours and hours a day because yeah. they're yep. eating so much like just plant matter that it takes like a long time to digest or right? like you look at a cow it basically has to chew all day <laughs> like yeah. that's the only <laughs> thing a cow does whereas it's like if we're eating a kind of like meat and fat heavy diet you can get your 2000 calories in like 10 minutes if you want to yeah yeah and also <laughs> like the size of guts that, too like you look at a gorilla right, right. like gorillas are like their size of their stomachs are huge, but that's because they're eating only plant. Like I think gorillas only eat plant matter, right? Gorillas uh, I eat. believe chimps, they chimps are. eat some meat, but uh, gorilla, like they largely eat plant matter, but gorillas, I think are right. Are gorillas vegetarian? They, they will, they oh, they'll eat like termites <laughs> and ants and stuff. Okay. They'll mostly eat. Yeah. Plants, bamboo shoots, fruit, Oh yeah, they do. I see this. Yeah. They're eating, they do eat termites and ants. I love all these questions or like, I love this like ridiculous logic. It's like, well, if gorillas are so strong, maybe we should just eat plants too. It's like, it's a different (laughs) stomach system. It's so (laughs) funny. I think that was in that, uh, that what the hell documentary, right? It's like, if you look at, if you look at a bull and a bull is like so strong and all it's eating is plants, like why do we need to eat meat? It's like, because you don't have the stomach. You don't have a fucking four-chamber stomach. Yeah. And like, <laughs> Do you also want to have to throw up your food and re-chew it so that you can digest it? Four like, times or three times. Yeah, four, yeah. Three or four times? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> but if uh, you want to stand around and chew grass all day, like I've got a great backyard for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he has like this whole chart of the energy densities of... Uh, of different foods. And so it's in, I have, I'm on the page right now. It's on uh, density of, in megajoules per kilogram. So vegetables and fruits are between 0.8 to 2.5 megajoules per kilogram. Tubers, which are like potatoes, sweet potatoes, that type of stuff. Um, and milk he has in the same category of the low category. It's 2.5 to five. Mm-hmm. Then he has meat, which is between five and 12. I'm guessing like chicken and like lean meat is probably on the lower end and like yeah. higher fat stuff is, is 12. Um, then he has higher than meat is actually cereals and legume grains, which are 12 to 15. And then, Oh, animal fats is actually separate. So oils. Yeah. And I was gonna say. Fats are, yeah those are 25 to 35. So meats is probably just muscle meat. Um, and then like a fats lot of game is, meat. Right. Yeah. Which is super lean anyway. Yeah, I think there's something where if you 
if you only ate game meat, you'd actually die because oh, wow. <laughs> there's some, there's something with like you, gosh, what is the reasoning for it? But like, it's so lean. There's not enough fat that, oh, hold on. Oh, like, are you talking about like silly. rabbits and stuff? Like if you were just eating like, like super lean game meat or, yeah, or just all yeah. game meat in general is super lean like that. Well, pretty much all game meat is super lean, but there is something where it's so lean that if you only ate that, your body would be like still missing some essential nutrients. Mm, got it. Hold on. We're going to fact check myself here because I feel like I've heard that too. I just don't know if that like, yeah. Oh, you know what? Yeah. All right. Let's see. You can still die of starvation. Here we go. So, But you know what? I'm also seeing a fact check on Wikipedia and it seems like it may not be true. See, this is good. This is like, you know, we're, we're saving real ourselves from uh, having to like apologize for getting things wrong later by just fact checking ourselves in real time. Here we go. <laughs> uh, protein poisoning refers to an unverified acute form of malnutrition that some have speculated may be caused by a diet deficient in fat where excess lean meat is consumed. Uh, speculation was associated with eating rabbit meat, which is very lean. There's speculation that other low fat game meats could cause the same phenomena. Um, speculated that eating fat may relieve the reported syndrome, but there's basically no verification. This is a real thing. Cool. All right. Now we know, (laughs) um, go crazy on the game meat, (laughs) y'all. Um, and just for comparison, like with the previous numbers, crude oil is 40 to 44 on that. So it's, you know, oil, oils and animal fats are just a, just a notch below crude oil, but they're, they're pretty high up there. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, this is always the surprising thing when you start putting more fat in your diet, protein and carbs only have four calories per gram, but then fat has nine. So if you've got you know, a pound of fat versus a pound of protein or a pound of carbs, like the pound of fat has more than double the number of calories. Yeah. Even though it might feel like you're eating the same amount, you're actually getting twice as much energy from it. Yeah. So those really fatty cuts of meat, like he gives this example here that since salmon has a really high fat content, it has an energy density of 9.1 megajoules per kilogram, which is three times that of cod. Yep. So yeah. And like I think it looks like the same fish, but the salmon has way more calories in it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think like just um going back to like big picture look on this, this is like it's it's it sounds, you know, cool and interesting for us to talk about about this right now. But uh, if you think about somebody having to survive, right, in a in a scenario where they can't just go to the grocery store or like order something from Uber Eats, right? If they're like, if they're not able to get enough food, this was literally survival. So that I'm not saying people were sitting around doing the math of like, oh, it's going to cost me this much energy to farm this particular fruit, right? Versus, uh, you know, go hunting. They weren't necessarily doing the math, but their choices had to be energy positive, right? Like you, and actually I think there's a quote somewhere that in the pre, um, where do I have it here? Uh, okay. Let's see. Um, yeah. Okay. So the, yeah, here we go. So it says net energy returns in every traditional agriculture relying solely on animate power. So animals had to be considerable greater, considerably greater than one. So he has his ratio, right? So like basically energy returns over right. energy cost to, to get that, you know, get that energy return. Um, and it had to be considerably greater than one edible harvests had to contain more energy than the amount consumed as food and feed needed, not only by people and animals producing those crops, but also by their non-working dependents. 
An insurmountable problem arises when we try to compare energy returns in traditional agricultures that were powered solely by animate energies and hence involved only transformations of recently received solar radiation. So what animals eat and humans eat was kind of derived from the sun in the immediate uh, time frame with those in modern farming, which is subsidized directly and indirectly uh, by fossil fuels. So for field operations, um, for fertilizers and pesticides, and then to build farm machinery. So it says that actually in modern day agriculture versus traditional agriculture, the modern day one has lower energy returns than traditional cropping. If you try to balance them out uh, from that perspective, like you factor in the fossil fuels, uh, I think that's the sense that, uh, or that's what he was kind of saying there. Yeah. And it's it's also just like, yeah, I mean, as we got better at hunting, we were able to eat more and more energy dense foods by being able to, you know, harvest more of them, which meant we could spend less and less time on the actual, like collecting food part of our days and like yeah. spend more of it on tool and, making you know, and getting in fights on Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think this also answered for me the, I don't want to call it a mystery because it's not really a mystery, but like it is in some ways, like the mystery of why farming started and why grains in particular, right? Like grains are just so energy dense compared to like, let's say you were, you know, foraging for berries, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> that's not going to cut it. Uh, you know, with foraging for berries is like, you're getting a nice bonus on top of the meat that you're finding yeah. grains. And you can see why societies have been built on grains. Uh, even if it's, you know, not necessarily the best thing for you, but it's just such a dense energy product. And that's consi- that's, consistent and you know in a lot of ways predictable versus uh versus hunting like i think he has a quote somewhere in here and i didn't highlight this one so i or no maybe i did um no i did okay yeah so uh i had written a note to myself that reliability is an underrated uh human motivator so Mm -hmm. he he has something here in the book compared to foraging early farming usually required higher human energy inputs Uh, I'm guessing, you know, so farming versus foraging, but it could support higher population densities and provide a more reliable food supply Uh, because you were sort of in control, virtually in control. I mean, you're not in control of the weather and other problems that can come about with farming, uh, but it it probably felt more reliable. And then it was fairly energy dense, maybe not as dense as like a high fat uh, meat diet, but uh, definitely more dense than you know, apples. <laughs> well, there's a, there's oh. another level to that argument too, that I heard recently, which is that, um, pasturing, you know, it's like domesticated animals yeah, yep, yep. are like the, are really the most reliable one because you could lose like an entire crop to bad weather or, or bad irrigation or, or pests or something, yep. but it's much harder to lose an entire like herd of cows or yeah. of cows. Yeah. Or like, collection of pigs and yeah. the nice the nice thing with animals is you can sort of harvest them whenever you want whereas That's a great point. grains have to be harvested basically when they're ready and then you have to hope they don't like spoil in the cellar but if you've got a tons point. of pigs yeah. you can just like harvest one whenever you need another one <laughs> was that in uh, so, this book i forget if it was in this book or something else that i was reading uh i think it was in this book where he's talking about how little work um is needed by like shepherds right like you can have two yeah. shepherds yeah, I was in here, right? I don't know. I can't remember if it was in here. It was in I, I've, I've heard it that was in something else too, I was reading. But it was basically like two shepherds can easily um, kind of handle, uh, I forget, is it like, um, is it a herd? No, it's not a herd, right? It's a flock. Flock, right? Yeah. 
no, is it a flat? I don't know. Yeah, whatever. It's, it's like, you know, yeah, it can, it can handle like hundreds of animals with two people and they're, it's largely downtime uh, in that job. Right. So it's like very energy efficient to your point, like you can manage yeah. hundreds of animals with two people. Uh, and yeah. And to your point too, you can kill them whenever you, you know, whenever you need them. Yeah. That's actually a good point. All right. We should probably move on to a new chapter because I know we're like spending all only our time on through farming. the first <laughs> one and we're like almost an hour into recording. So. <laughs> Classic us move. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so there's one thing in the traditional farming section I wanted to call out because this was so cool. It's like that graph of animal energy efficiency and how like horses are these perfectly designed animals for working, mostly oh, yeah. because yep. they've got three-fifths of their weight in the front of their body and only two-fifths in the back. So they can actually get a much greater pulling efficiency than like cattle and ox and other in like donkeys that are normally also used uh on a farm i thought that was just super neat where it's like you know horses are almost like uh you know secondary to humans in terms of being designed for incredible energy efficiency yeah yeah no and and then it's also super interesting how um horses were not in sort of north and south america for a long time right and they i mean they somehow maybe that's why they didn't come up with the wheel like you know i think horses pulled a lot of wheel like well um that was somewhere in here too but i'm not going to spend the time looking for it because it's going to take another another couple of minutes but yeah i mean i feel like uh to your point like horses are basically the perfect uh like partner to humans in yeah. uh, farming at least it makes sense why you like see them as such like a co-adapted animal yeah. with humans throughout history. I think the so note I, on dogs was kind of cool too, where it's basically like dogs kind of co-evolved with us and we literally like adapted their stomach to eating grain so that they could live with us. Oh like yeah. Wolves, yep. <laughs> wolves can't digest grain, but um, domesticated dogs can. And have you seen that thing about like people are like basically giving their dogs heart disease by feeding them grain-free diets? Uh, grain-free diets yeah so this is like a whole thing in the pet industry right now where basically like uh a lot of you know and they were totally well-meaning pet food companies said okay you know going paleo is like all the rage for humans people should do that for their dogs too because you know like obviously dogs aren't supposed to eat grains and things like that and it's like well no they are that's like part of how dogs evolved from wolves (laughs) by adapting to eat grains and so they started making all of these grain-free dog foods with all these other fillers in them that dogs literally would never have eaten like these fake pea proteins and things like that and so, I mean, if you, if you have a dog and you're on one of these grain-free dog foods, I would look it up because a lot of them have been named in like this oh, big wow. class action lawsuit slash like recall where it's sort of like, no, these foods are actually killing dogs. Like this is really wow. bad. Not um, about that. Wow. That makes sense yeah. though. That makes sense after that. And it's, yeah. it's not that they need grains to be healthy. It's that when they took out grains, they put in all this other shit that's like way worse for them. And now they're getting sick. Dogs are totally fine eating a certain amount of grain. Um, which is like kind of wild. It's sort of like, you know, when we, when there's the whole fat free craze for humans, it's like, yep. no, this is, this is way worse. Obviously high fructose corn syrup is better for you than animal fat. Like <laughs> I can't believe like looking back, 
I mean, I, I want. I feel like we're getting better at it. I don't know. I, maybe it's the arrogance of the present, right? The like, oh man, a lot of people have, still drink I, like skim milk. I'm just like, yeah. oh, so you you took out the part of the milk that has all of the good healthy things, and you just have sugar, sugar water. Yeah, like <laughs> sounds like the standard American diet, though. <laughs> yeah, pretty much <laughs> should be. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't get it. I don't. I, you, it, it's almost. I mean, there's a whole episode. I, I wish there's like. I wonder if there is a good book on this, but like. It is, it really does show the, uh, it's like human hubris, right? Like, we're like, oh, we're smarter now. We can come up with better. Like the margarine is always my yeah, favorite yeah. one. I think it's, it's like this, butter was fine. Butter was fine. Why do we gotta, we, why do we gotta mess with it? We conquered all of these other simple things like transportation and shelter. And so we just assumed that we knew nutrition as well and that we could outsmart nature there. And that, that one's just not true. <laughs> we just, we have no idea really how it works. So the, I feel like the best we can do is just throw up our hands and say, okay, we're just going to try to eat what we've always been eating and like call it a day there. And I think um, the only way that that changes is if, and this is at the very end of the book and, and he doesn't go too much into it because it's not really his, his area. But um, I think he has a quote, like where this is all leading is like the end of uh, like carbon based life form as being like the human substrate or something. Right? Yeah. It's like where we're it's almost like a, a little homodacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's somewhere in here it, whatever it's, it's not his, like he only had like a throwaway little section on it, but uh, yeah, it's not because it's not his area of expertise, but I feel like that's the only way that what we just said, it becomes not true. Right. Is if uh, like the human, because right now, like fundamentally, I mean, this is the whole argument behind the paleo diet is like, um, and I'm not saying like, okay, go follow that diet. But the argument is that we haven't had that much time to evolve to sort of modern foods. Uh, and we're the same body more or less than what we were that, you know, thousands of years ago, at least. Um, and that's like the argument behind it. But, uh, you know, I feel like as he's, what he's saying in that sort of little section at the end was that, uh, if we're not, uh, you know, the same type of body, well, then all, you know, everything kind of goes out the window of what we know about nutrition. Uh, right. But I don't think we're that close to that. I mean, Hey, who knows? Maybe Elon Musk and Neuralink and all that will, <laughs> will come sooner than we think, but I would be surprised. Yeah. I'd be surprised. Um, all right. Shall we move beyond yeah, to uh, prime movers and fuels? Uh, yeah. Hold on. I had a quote for, Yeah. I mean, this, this, there wasn't honestly like a ton in this chapter. It was just like, here's all these different kinds of energy, um, which is kind of cool. I mean, like, so there's a few, some, there's a few things that were sort of neat in here, right? Like obviously gunpowder was huge. Uh, water power was really interesting. I hadn't thought about what a big deal water power was, but he makes this point that, uh, like a single windmill or water mill, kind of like either that could, uh, help process flour. Yep. So he says uh, a single mill would have produced enough flour in a 10 hour shift to feed 2,500 to 3,000 people, hmm. which is crazy. You just put yeah. one mill by the river and you can feed like 3,000 people, <laughs> assuming you have enough wheat for all of them. Like that's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Yeah. That's a crazy amount of output. And can you imagine? I mean, how much that, that's got to be so okay so 3000 people so and we assume 2000 calories a day 
So we're looking at 6 million uh, calories from wheat. So we've got 6 million and then we're dividing that by four. So we're at 1.5 million grams of wheat over 10 hours. So 150,000 grams of wheat per hour. Like how many people would that take? Right. That's, I mean, but that's still in a pound. Yeah. But also the energy is being provided for that via water, right? Yeah. By the from the water running, which is super, I mean, that's awesome. Um, yeah. There's also, I think a section in here, uh, related that says nearly all traditional societies could produce heat and light only by burning biomass fuels, which I thought was pretty interesting. If you think about it, right. It's like crop residues, uh, tree branches, right. So wood, uh, it says woody phytomass, uh, charcoal derived from that dried dung, which I thought was a pretty mm-hmm. interesting one. And I, I've, I've definitely like seen and heard that before that throughout the world, that was another, um, and I think it was, they even talked about in America, right? Like Buffalo dung made the continental crossings possible. And right, right. It was like a very called it Buffalo fuel. wood. Yeah. So funny. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's, it goes back to like, um, you just kind of use like what you have, like, yeah, okay. There's, there's fuel in there, so you gotta use it, right? If you don't have much, yeah, choice, exactly. What else are you gonna do? Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, that it's pretty interesting from that perspective. Um, I didn't yeah. realize charcoal was that old. I don't know what I, how old I thought it was, but I didn't realize that it was literally the kind of the reason we were able to melt iron. Yeah. Where does does he give a date? I don't have one in my notes here. I don't have one in my notes either, but I'm back on the page. Let's see. Uh, I don't, s- yeah, I don't see a date on here. Um, either way it's, it is kind of interesting because it's also like, that's such a great example of being just really efficient with resources. Yep. Or it's like, Oh, this wood already burned and now we can just like use the burned wood to, do more burning. <laughs> yeah. But also get to temperatures to nearly, it says 2000 degrees Celsius, which is by using bellows, like bl- blowing air, using a supplementary yeah, air supply. It says it, it says combustion could produce temperatures on its own of 900 degrees Celsius, but with a supplemental air supply uh, achieved most efficiently by using bellows could be raised to nearly 2000 degrees Celsius, more than enough to melt even iron ores. Which is, yeah. That's pretty cool. Neat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't know why I didn't realize charcoal was there since that long ago, but, uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting that they had that. I, I let me see, let me just look this up. Cause it's kind of, kind of curious. There's some other just like really interesting things in here while you look that up. Like, uh, he mentions this, there's like Char- a temple in Southern Peru, uh, Olan Taitambo, I believe. So there's, and they've got these like 140 ton stones up at this temple and pulling that up a ramp would have required about 2,400 men to move it. And then there's a sort of open question of like, okay, well, how, how do you get 2000 men to like harness to pull at the same time? Right. How does that even make sense? And how could they fit into the confines of a six to eight meter ramp that the Incans used? Like, there's just all of these really interesting questions. Yeah. Um, or he's got another one of uh, people in ancient Brittany. There's some uh, 340 ton stone 
erected in this like old ancient European society. And we just like have no answers for how some of these things were done, which I think is kind of crazy. It's like, okay, well, aliens is not the obvious answer here, right? Like they either, (laughs) they either had more advanced technology for this stuff than we assumed they had, or they had some clever, like physical world hacks that we just have forgotten how to do or don't know how to do because we have technology that answers these questions for us now. I just find that stuff so interesting. I feel like forgotten knowledge is definitely a real thing. Like there's, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Especially because when you consider like the, um, even with, let's say, uh, I mean, this is going to be a silly example, but just bear with me. The, like, imagine, something happens to our society, right? And all of our, inf- assume all of our information is on hard drives, let's say, right? And those hard drives mm-hmm. don't get destroyed. But unless like the next society also invents hard drives, <laughs> right? How would they yeah. ever read what's on those hard drives? Like they would have no idea that these, they would just be like, oh, what are these like bricks that they have? Or these like squares that they, <laughs> that they, that they had, right? And like, and that's like something that's as sturdy as a hard drive. Imagine if everything was um, oral tradition, Right. Right. Like it's gone. It's gone when that society is gone. And so, uh, yeah, like I, I feel like there's probably a lot of stuff. I mean, I have no proof besides, I mean, these interesting questions that he brings up, but. Well, but that's why it's sort of the like great flood speculation is so interesting because if there was some huge flood that wiped out like 80% of people and, you know, emptied out a lot of these ancient, like pre-civilization civilizations, right. Like you don't, you don't need to have crazy advanced technology speculation to just recognize that, okay, if a huge number of people died and if there was a predominantly oral tradition, then we would have lost most of that knowledge. Right. Yeah. Or they, they could have been using some kind of paper, right? It's like the reason we don't have, like the reason we don't have notes from uh, like Phoenicians and stuff is that they were using a sort of papyrus that just didn't last. Right. Right. It wasn't that they weren't recording stuff. It just... They weren't putting. I mean, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen in like an old like if you go to you know like grandparents' house or something like that, and there's like books from fifty years ago. They don't look like they're in good shape, and that's only fifty years. Yeah, (laughs) I've got I've got a I've got a book print from the 1800s, and it's like barely keeping it together. Yep, yep, and that's 1800s. So when you start thinking like 2000 BC or something, yeah, (laughs) right. Like, um, I mean, let alone 13,000, right? Right. Right. And I found, so I found an article, going back to charcoal, I found an article uh, from McGill University in Canada. So I don't know if we can trust it. Just kidding, Canadians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I just put it in the chat. We'll put it in the, in the show notes. It says that uh, the fact that charcoal burns better than wood was probably noted soon after man learned to control fire over a million years ago. The first use of charcoal for purposes other than providing heat was around 30,000 BC when cavemen used it as a pigment for drawing on the walls of caves. Mm. So it's been around for a long time. I did not realize that. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. There's just like a lot of random little neat tidbits in this section about like energy. Um, Yeah. Oh, I thought one thing that was interesting uh, and I, I guess this was the last thing in my notes from this section, uh, but it was saying cooking required relatively little heat energy in East, East Asian stir frying and steaming. In contrast, considerable fuel inputs were needed for baking bread, the staple throughout the rest of the old world, and for roasting done commonly in the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. I thought that was interesting because I guess yeah. it, that makes sense when you think about it, right? Like stir frying doesn't take much time or energy. 
Yeah, it's uh, quick and requires a smaller flame because you're cooking yeah. more directly on the fire. Whereas baking is a lot of like area heat. You need to heat a much larger area in order, yep. and you want to like keep it consistent. Yep. So, makes sense. Yeah. Oh, the last thing in here that's kind of interesting is thinking about how much forest cities required. Mm, yeah, that was cool. That was kind of related to scale. Yeah, it was very related to scale, where it's basically like a city could only get as large as the surrounding forest that it could draw energy from until we figured out other sources of fuel. Um, Just like kind of interesting. Uh, And he mentioned it a little bit in the intro, too. And I think that description was a little bit snappier. So I'm going to find it where he said, oh, yeah, here we go. The power density of sustainable annual tree growth in temperate climates is at best equal to 2% of the power density of energy consumption for traditional urban heating, cooking, and manufacturers. So cities had to draw on nearby areas at least 30 times their size for fuel supply. So if you wanted to have like a 10-acre city, you needed 300 acres of forest to sustain it. Kind of neat. This is a lot. Yeah, but that's a lot. lot. (laughs) It's it's not a small area. (laughs) Yeah. And like 10 acres is a fairly small area. I mean, right. that's like, I mean, how much is a block in a city? Like uh, how many acres is a block? Is it even one? Might not even be city one. blocks are typically 2.2 to 2.5 acres. Okay. So, so it's four yeah, blocks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you... <laughs> so four, <laughs> 10 acres is four blocks. So you need 300 acres of forest to sustain four blocks of ancient energy. Yeah. So you need, yeah, exactly. Wow. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It makes sense then that like, I don't know, just in what I picture a city in the past, like, you know, that type of past to be um, like a feudal, you know, like medieval times type of uh, type of city. Like, I don't know. I don't picture them being too close together. Right. No. And I think that they couldn't be <laughs> like by would. definition. Yeah. By yeah. definition, they couldn't be. And we live in good times with fossil fuels, like, and maybe, yeah, you know, maybe moving on from fossil fuels, but, uh, we live in, yeah, we live in good times comparatively. It's also, I, I, uh, I read this funny thing the other, or I guess it was a while ago. It was sort of like, it's kind of interesting that all of the quote unquote renewable energy sources, uh, are like all the renewable things in the world. So like, animals you know like whales or a lot of plant life and things like those are all going extinct and disappearing but the non-renewables like oil and uh rare earth metals and stuff don't actually seem to be running out and we keep finding more and more of them (laughs) yeah we're finding new techniques to squeeze more out like yeah yeah Um, it's like remember when fracking was a thing and then we just found so much more oil that we basically didn't need to do it anymore. Yeah. Like, and then like the oil sand stuff. I don't know if you've ever seen that in Canada. They I haven't like, seen that. So it's, I think there's two major fields. There's one in Alberta and then I don't know where the other one is somewhere in South America. I think, I think Brazil somewhere uh, or somewhere in South America. I don't want to say Brazil, but they're, those are like the two major ones. They basically, I don't know exactly how they do it, but they're able to extract oil out of this particular sand that's up there. And there's a lot of it. It's like so much so that, yeah, I'm going to just Google how much is the Alberta oil sands. Also side note on oil, just in case anybody else was like me and thought that oil mostly came from dead animals. Like most of it comes from dead plants. I didn't realize that until embarrassingly recently. I feel like you always had that image growing up of like, oh, you're like using dead dinosaurs to power your car. 
It's like, no, you're mostly <laughs> using like dead trees and stuff. It's just a cooler. I, it's a cooler picture. It's a much cooler <laughs> image. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Alberta's oil sands, they haven't fully tapped it, but Alberta's oil sands is the third largest proven oil reserve in the world after Venezuela and Saudi Arabian oil fields. Alberta oil sands proven reserves equal to about 165.4 billion barrels of oil. Jeez. <laughs> Max production so far, I think, was 2.8 million barrels per day. That was in 2017, and it's wow. gone down since then. But yeah, it's like you said, yeah, there I mean, were 100 billion gallons that, or 100 billion barrels. 165.4 billion. Yeah. <laughs> and wait, they were doing two two million barrels a day. It's max, but then they slowed it down. Holy shit. Can you imagine the infrastructure you need? That's what I was thinking. Yep. Two yep. million barrels a day. Wild, right? That's insane. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's the the thing that to your point about how the non-renewables keep getting like discovered, it's yeah, it's not obviously that more oil is being like created at that pace. It's just that there is a lot of oil out there. And I guess this is there's some type of technique that they developed to extract oil from sand from this particular type and the oil is there it's just in small amounts on each individual you know bit of sand i guess and there's they're able to pull it off and and purify it um dude i just did the math at that 2.3 million rate they could do that for over 200 years wow That is insane. It sounds like so much, but compared to the 160 billion available, and like I, I just have a, I feel like our minds have a hard time doing the math at those numbers. I can't, I can't. I, I was thinking, I'm like, oh, it's probably like 20 years or something, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, that's 100 a- <laughs> years at two million barrels a day, seven days a week, like that's Jeez. crazy. Yeah, it just like I mean the other thing that uh, there's um, there's some accounts that I follow on Twitter like in the last, ever since I read that the prize book uh, just because they're interesting like they talk about the oil industry and it's it's really interesting the narrative versus like the facts on the ground and I think and I'm not somebody who like I, like I actually really do believe in renewables and uh, I, I went on like a rant the other day about nuclear like I do think there's better ways to do things than we do them right now. Um, right. But one thing I found out through these Twitter accounts is like the demand for oil is not falling. It's not only not gr- the growth, not only hasn't stopped, it's projected to continue to like at least 2050, the worldwide oil, like they need more oil next year, every year till like 2050, at least yeah. like that's what they've projected out to And it's not, it's not because the U S and like Europe, it's mostly because the rest of the world um, yeah. is, is urban. I mean, not just urbanizing, but industrializing and, and in general, actually, when you take a step back, like, okay, obviously climate change is a major issue, but when you take a step back, that also is directly tied to these, you know, millions and actually billions of people not being in poverty anymore. Like those mm-hmm. are directly tied together. Cause if you look back at, I mean, even just the chapter we were just talking about the farming chapter, and we were just saying how blessed we are right now, in large part, that's because we can harness more energy, uh, which is derived from fossil fuels in the you know, from in the majority of it, at least right now. Um, and yeah, and it's like the rest of the world is kind of like, okay, but we hopefully can do that too. <laughs> and they want yeah, to do I mean, that. that. That was an interesting criticism I heard of the U S being so hard on China polluting the atmosphere so much when it was going through some of its more industrial revolution, where it was kind of like, 
oh, so it's fine for the U.S. to heavily pollute the atmosphere for 100 years while we go through industrialization, <laughs> but now like China's not allowed to do it to catch up. <laughs> like, yeah. Some of these, you know, there, it might just be a necessary phase in development, right? And like, hopefully at some point we can find a way to help other countries like skip that step and go straight to renewable energy. Well, that but and things might be getting, cl- I mean, like the techniques- I think we're getting closer to that, yeah. Well, and things are definitely cleaner now in terms that of- too. Versus like a hundred years ago, right? In terms of uh, even just like coal to oil or coal to natural gas, that shift is massive. Uh, Dude, I heard you know, a crazy theory the other day that like it's not actually that crazy of a theory. It's, it's a very interesting <laughs> theory, which is that um, a lot of the like crime and like <clears throat> primarily crime that happened in the U.S. in the late 1900s was partially influenced by um, lead poisoning from living in the cities where cars were using leaded gasoline because like there was something where like mother's breast milk had like more lead than the acceptable amount in uh, like store-bought milk. And like everybody was so poisoned with lead from cars belching it into the atmosphere that they were actually getting like neurological damage from it and like mania and other things that would actually lead to a lot of the crime that happened in cities around that time. And then if you track when like the crime decreased, it kind of tracks with follow with 18 years following when lead was taken out of gasoline and it stopped being pumped into like everyone's homes <laughs> in big wow. cities. It's like a super interesting idea, right? But it kind of fits with what you were just saying about like cleanliness, right? Like we've gotten a little bit better at using gasoline without, you know, totally destroying ourselves in the process. Um, Have you ever seen that study around easy pass and low birth birth weight and premature birth? Have you ever seen that? No, No. you haven't seen this? Okay, hold on. I just pulled it up. Um, And this isn't the full article, but you can at least see the... The full article is somewhere out there, uh, but this was like you can see the little abstract. So it says, exploit the introduction of electronic toll collection, Easy Pass, which greatly reduced both traffic congestion and vehicle emissions near highway toll plazas. We show that the introduction of Easy Pass reduced prematurity and low birth what? weight among mothers within two kilometers of the toll plaza by 10.8% and 11.8%, respectively, relative to mothers two to 10 kilometers from a toll plaza. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. So the idea is it's the that same idea. Their air, it's the same idea. Yeah, their air is less polluted because the cars aren't spending as much time near them. Yep. And so they're having. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, we're you know, I I have an air purifier in my house now after seeing how bad the air can get here, and I think we're going to install a whole house water purifier too, just because mm, makes sense. Yeah, there's like so much shit in the water that in tiny amounts isn't so bad, but over time can really build up and is obviously not great. In for Texas, you. you guys had some like brain eating. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. The like brain right? eating that, that was just in the lake, thankfully. Okay. Um, <laughs> just, so like, you know, we're not, I, saw that headline, water, I had no but, idea if it was real, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it actually got into anyone's like drinking water in their house. Good. But, um, We've had like a bunch of dogs have died from swimming at the lake here, actually. Oh, wow. Just really from sad. like contaminants or something or some from like that bacteria stuff. Yeah. Oh, wow. We don't really know what's causing it, but they basically just tell you not to let your dog swim in Austin anymore hmm. because it's been such a big issue. Damn. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's like going back to it's like, uh, 
it, it, the analogy that I like to think of is, and I don't know if this is like, this is just my like opinion or not even opinion. This is like my thought process right now is that maybe fossil fuels are necessary to develop like, um, escape velocity or something. Right. Yeah. So, so you like develop your technology, your, your, uh, society to a point where you're in a position to develop renewable energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or something like that, something like that. Right. Um, cause there is, I mean, and people, uh, I know people use this argument disingenuously, so I'm not trying to use it that way, but, um, like you have to admit in solar panels, like it's not solar panels don't just appear. Like there's a lot of stuff that goes into them. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of that is derived from fossil fuels still like the rare earth minerals. Uh, a lot of, I mean, you can't, mine seven miles below the earth's surface on solar energy yet maybe you yeah. can at some point but it's well, gonna be still very like to do it there's still kind of a bad deal like they they came with our house so we have them but if i had the choice of adding them i wouldn't it's like ten thousand dollars to save a hundred dollars a month yeah that <laughs> like, <doesn't> really, yeah. <laughs> makes no sense at all yeah. um but you know hopefully that technology continues to advance to a point where it does make sense. And I think there would be other cases where like if we were in a situation where oil were a lot more expensive, it would make more sense and things like that. But it's yeah, and I think, still I, not at the point where it's a no brainer. And I think the other, the other issue, and, and I think what I started saying before, and then, and then of course we went on a tangent uh, is how the narrative and the reality don't really match up right now. And I think, so, you know, obviously, uh, at least when we're doing this recording, energy stocks are way down. And like, you know, people say it's like, oh, because the world is moving to renewable and all this. And I think to some extent that's true. Like if you view the stock market as like a forward looking mechanism, which is arguable, but, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) but if that is the case, right, like you, um, you can definitely see that argument holding uh, weight, but I think the sort of underrated narrative that isn't being talked about as much is what we were talking about earlier. Like the, let's say the Alberta oil sands, right? There's all these sources of oil that we just keep finding. Like there's just a glut of, there's just so much oil, right? So it's like, if you just look at a price, you know, a price of anything, when you get a huge supply glut, the price tends to come down. And if a company is built and the infrastructure that they built and they, I mean, the way that oil companies build infrastructure, which is really interesting, is they do these like multi-billion dollar projects and then they amortize them over, you know, whatever number of years in the future, but they, they do the upfront cost. So those, um, those infrastructure projects that they do require oil being above a certain price for it to sort of pay for itself. Uh, and when you have a supply glut like that, right, like the price falls below that and then the companies are in trouble. Um, but it, it's, it's not that people aren't using oil, right? It's like, if you just look at the headlines, at least maybe the headlines I see, um, you get the sense of like, okay, well, everybody's moving to renewable. We're not using oil anymore. And like, you know, we're not going to ever use oil again after like five years from now. And like, okay, yes. As the U S is using less, the rest of the world is just using, you know, more. And and it doesn't mean that oil is going away in the short term. I, yeah. in my opinion, this, the price thing has been more because of, uh, of course I'm not an expert on this, but like, I suspect that that plays a huge role. Like the math that you oh, just definitely. did the mat that you just did, right? Like they could run that plant or that, that field at full capacity for 200 plus years before it was depleted. And they probably would come up with other techniques in that meantime to extract more uh, from that same area. Well, and the U S doesn't punish using oil the same way like other countries do. I mean, in in Texas, I can go get a gallon of gas for 
my truck for like a dollar seventy a gallon. Probably less than a, gla- <laughs> than a gallon of milk. <laughs> yeah, it actually is. It's a dollar seventy a gallon. It cost me like twenty five bucks to fill it up. It's wild. I mean, I think uh, I've seen I've seen actually really interesting uh, work done even by like renewables uh, people on on Twitter. They were talking about how like there has to be a balance, right? And like the journey to renewable. And I think California was the example they were giving. And, um, you know, I think the blackouts they had recently, right. Of how, like, uh, I think they've had some sort of top down mandates around using renewables and, um, there was some disruption to that. I don't know exactly what the disruption was, or there was a demand spike that was bigger than what they were expecting. Uh, and they were saying it's actually not a technical issue for those blackouts. Like it, you know, if they were allowed to use, I think they're saying natural gas, uh, plants that they already have there. Um, if they were allowed to use those to sort of backs it'd be like the backstop you wouldn't have those blackouts like they wouldn't be a problem um mm. but i think it's like a regulation issue that they're not allowed to so i know the ad the uh this person at least was talking i i gotta find who this was but this person was talking about like viewing it more as like a transition rather than like a light switch like you don't go from fossil fuel to no fossil fuel right you go from fossil fuel to like mix and then you reduce the mix and keep reducing the mix until you're like you know 100 confident you're not going to have those types of issues. But the great thing about fossil fuels is like there, and and that's what he talks about a lot in the book um, is like, they can be used like whenever you're not dependent on the sun necessarily, right? You're not right. dependent on day night cycles, wind, don't need batteries, don't need batteries can be transported fairly easily. Cause a lot well, not natural gas, but like oil is liquid. So it's fairly easy to transport. Super uh, dense. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there's like a lot of advantages to it. And uh, I mean, of course, to, because like we can't, of course, like climate change is, is definitely an issue. And you, I think everybody knows like where we need, not everybody, but you know what I mean? <laughs> a lot of people know where we need to get, uh, but it's, you can't just get there in one day without causing major, major pain to the entire world infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though. I wonder how like COVID has reduced, uh, I haven't looked, I should have looked at this before the episode, but I wonder like, you know, people haven't been flying as much. I know jet fuel is like a major Dude, there were some great visualizations of the air above China before and after lockdown. Um, air in China during COVID. Let's see. There were some really interesting like photos of the air above like Beijing and places. Hmm that showed like how much cleaner the air got during lockdown. Yep. <laughs> find them. Uh, we'll, we'll have to look them up later and include them in the show notes, but there, there was definitely a big impact. Um, he has, he has this line by the way, in the book where um, he said, no terrestrial civilization can be anything else, but a solar society dependent on the sun's radiation. Uh, and, and he means by, by that, he means like obviously the biomass and the, um, you know, wood and, and all that, but wind and water flows are also dependent in many and ways on the sun. sun. Yeah. Yep. And then of course, fossil fuels are, uh, originally the energy came from the sun. Right. So yep. I found one exception to that when I was doing my research before the episode, uranium was not created as part of the solar system or by the sun, which is why oh, that's a good point. It's from here yeah, before, I didn't know right? that. I didn't know that. Yeah. It says uranium, uranium was apparently formed in a supernova about 6.6 billion years ago. Just super cool. cool. It's older than the yeah. solar system. Well, that's actually a good segue because he has some interesting stuff on like nuclear energy here. Yep. 
And I didn't realize this, but the very first nuclear reactors were for submarines. They weren't for like commercial energy production. And so the the original nuclear reactors were designed for propelling submarines. And if, you know, a submarine melts down underwater, like, I mean, it sucks for the people on it, obviously, but it's not going to really have a broader impact beyond right. that submarine. Right. But then they basically just took those reactors and put them on land and used them to start generating power. And, you know, that kind of explains some of the early meltdowns and challenges they had. And yeah, nuclear is... In my opinion, it just hasn't even been really given a a fair chance because it was, to your point, it wasn't built. The designs they're using right now are not built from the idea of like. Well, I think civilian. a lot of the ones they use today are the newer ones the are, ones but those that aren't even melted down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. yep. And the like, ones that they have in like France, I think now, and I think India has been building a few, and I forget there are a couple other countries. And there's uh, all these bad images of nuclear, but more people die per day from pollution and such from like uh, oil and coal than have died in the entire history of nuclear. Like, yeah. it's actually insane if you look at the body count by energy source. More people die from solar than have died from nuclear. Yeah. That was the really <laughs> wild one. But you got a really bad image from nuclear, right? You got like the Hiroshima and like, you know, you just got, and it's got this conflation between five mile Island. uh, But But you don't, yeah. I mean, imagine if like every time you thought about filling up your gas tank, you thought about like a burning oil field in Iraq or something. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's not the image that crosses your head when you go fill up your gas tank. But with nuclear, somebody says, Oh, you know, we're considering building a nuclear plant. And the first image that goes through your head is like, you know, those atom bomb explosion videos that they have uh, that you've no doubt seen. Uh, Yeah. It's just, it's really bad marketing. And it's like, I, Uh, so I've got I've got the numbers up here, but remember the really bad Fukushima meltdown? Yeah. Yep. How many people do you think died in that incident? Uh, two hundred fifty. Four Eight more. Four? Yeah. That's it. That's it. Right? Wow. It's I like didn't realize that. <laughs> it's it's crazy how low these body counts actually are. I mean, how many people do you think died in Chernobyl? Well, that was probably unreliable, right? What what the uh. Well, I'll I'll guess I'll, I'll guess like a thousand. Uh, it looks like forty-seven. <laughs> now, wow. the, the caveat is that there's an estimated up to about four thousand possible cancer deaths that came later. Right. 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 But, well, okay. I have this. I have this uh, kind of bone to pick with with that. Like the. Well, yes. Okay. Not not a bone to pick. That's a a real number, right? Or like an estimate. Yeah. Um, but the way we talk about deaths is kind of strange and it applies to COVID too, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know what the right metric is, but it's something like you almost want to subtract like life expectancy versus like when somebody dies or something yeah, like well, that. That's right? the big issue with a lot of the COVID death reporting now is, and this is why like the main metric I've been looking at is the excess death rate. Yeah. Because, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. Yep. Yep. It's like if you look at a city and you hear, oh, there were 100 COVID deaths last week. And then you, you have to ask yourself like, okay, but how many of those people were sort of like 
about to die from some other disease as well. And then they like got it in the hospital or they got it in the nursing home or whatever. Um, but like the, the excess death rate tells you a lot, like you look at the excess death rate for New York city when it was going through its horrible, like COVID crisis. And it's like, Oh, this is clearly like a huge fucking issue. Right. Right. Um, but then there but was all that I mean. like, that's what yeah. I mean. Cause it's like the, even like the suspected cancer, let's say from Chernobyl, right. It's like, you got to look at if somebody developed like the excess cancer over, over the, right. uh, because the actual some, delta there. Yeah. Cause so, I'm not saying like nobody, I'm sure a lot of people developed cancer because of Chernobyl, but then to get it, to basically take like the raw 4,000 number is like, let's say everybody in the area who got cancer, but like maybe 400 of them would have gotten it anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, 3,600 were excess over the baseline. Right. It's like, that's how you got to look at it. Not necessarily the raw number. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's easier to just say, you know, deaths or suspected deaths you than, wanna, uh, than that. You want to know another like very semi cancelable take on excess death rate and COVID? Ooh, let's hear it. Uh, if you look at some cities, excess death rate has gone down because people aren't like going out. And so they're not getting in car accidents. They're not like having accidents of like, you know, like drinking too much or, you know, doing other stupid shit and dying. And that I believe. So in, in like some <laughs> cities, COVID has actually been good for the excess death rate, even though <laughs> people are dying from it because everyone's staying inside. It's like, yep. obviously, obviously COVID's not a good thing, right? Like nobody's saying that. It's just kind of interesting when you compare like, okay, you know, if we, you know, it's like, how do you, like you were saying, how do you measure death rate from something? Uh, because yeah, I mean, that's like, if, if 10 kids don't get hit by cars and one person dies of COVID, is that a bad thing? It doesn't seem like a bad thing, but it yeah. seems weird to say it's not a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's that's, like, <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's the same, it's the same idea between, I mean that, and then, um, I mean, with, uh, with COVID, I also saw that, uh, and I don't think this is a cancelable take, but whatever, uh, that the, the, uh, the COVID stuff gets so squirrely. It's like even very reasonable it things be, about because it. These are, we're just trying to like, look at the numbers. I mean, that's just, yeah, we're yeah. just trying to make sense of the numbers, not even look at them. We're just trying to make sense of them. Yeah. No, I think what happened I is like, the, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Just, uh, I'll just say this. And then I, I think I know where you're going and we'll, pick that up. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're, what I was going to say is that, uh, the medical error debts also went down. Like, so oh, yeah. nobody's because doing people corrective aren't, surgeries. Yeah, exactly. So that one's yeah. really interesting to me too. Cause I yeah. mean, there's a lot of those. And <laughs> I think I saw I, like heart, heart, not heart attacks, but, um, there was like yeah, some heart attacks have condition. gone down. Yeah. Okay. So have I wasn't making that death, death okay, by heart yeah. attack have decreased. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, um, wild. but they, there was a pay. I, I, I shared this somewhere. Uh, there was a good research paper on that. And it was sort of asking the question like, okay, why is this happening? And one of the things it pointed out is that there are actually a number of like mild heart attacks that people have that they could actually just like ride out on their own. And like, by the way, if anybody's listening to this and you think you're having a heart attack, please go to the hospital. Like this is not <laughs> medical advice, but what the, what the article is saying is that like people get unnecessary interventions in very mild heart attacks sometimes, and then they can die from those. And yeah. now people who are having like mild versions of things aren't going to the hospitals. And so they're not getting unnecessary treatments that could lead to them dying. It's like the perfect example of, you know, iatrogenics and, uh, 
like no, by the healer. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I mean, we know we know somebody who um, has a, like a condition that requires a stomach tube, and mm. he had to go to the hospital to get it. I think not changed, but like there was something that was wrong with it. So Wait, he, we yeah. like me and you, or like you no, I and said your he, family. I said he. Well, yeah, my family knows somebody who. Oh, okay. Who I thought you were saying yeah. you and I know somebody. I was like, no, hey. no, 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 no. no. Okay. no. So, but he had to go to the hospital. I think it was like blocked or something. Something very minor. Um, yeah. And but it required like an overnight because I think there was some type of like very minor surgery needed. Um, and while there, he caught, he got a pneumonia and he was there for like a couple of weeks. I mean, luckily he was fine after, but it was just like a hospital acquired infection, right? He did not go in with pneumonia. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, overnight thing, the next day is like, you know, he developed symptoms of that and they thought it was COVID. So that also made it, you know, worse. And uh, yeah, it's just like going to the hospital is generally not a good, not a good thing. Uh, yeah. So I mean, less people go to the hospital. Yeah, I mean, less people before, but like medical, medical yeah, mistakes medical. kill more people than any individual cancer. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna. Well, let's see. Like medical that. mistake. That's 2019. Let's see. It's like top 10 cause of mortality or something. Yeah. So this is from last year. It says researchers estimate that an annual 251,454 U.S. deaths, or 9.5 yeah. percent of all annual U.S. deaths, result from medical error. Making it the, the third, third leading cause of death yeah. after heart disease and cancer. Yeah, so it's a lot. Um, I mean, of course, like, yes, if you feel like you need to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. Like, we're not saying, <laughs> we're not giving medical advice. Uh, but the question is, when do you need to go to the hospital? That's yeah, always the question it, I'm asking myself. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also just an interesting, when we're just going back to, like, the numbers, it's just an interesting way to look at, like, the big picture, right? Right. Of, of what's, uh, what were you saying before? You were, like, the reason it gets all squirrely. Oh, oh! I was saying that as soon as we started using terms like anti-maskers, it got oh, into yeah. the realm of vaccines, yeah. and like that area is so charged, yeah, that then it kind of like took on that religious fervor. I think, and now it's like, why do some things take on that religious fervor? Like, I'm very curious what the psychology. Yeah, that's a is great question. Because I mean, Cause the, some things the vaccine people just thing don't is care so about. interesting. It's like you can't even talk about it in any yeah. capacity. Right. Yep. And like COVID feels like it's or some ver- some topics related to it are like getting to that level, too. But nobody gets really upset when you talk about uh, what's well, OK, what's a political issue that people don't get that upset when you talk about? Because maybe it's just that it's a political <laughs> thing. That's actually right? like, I don't know. Well, let me think. Let me think. Is there any that are not supercharged? Um, <laughs> what's something that like everybody pretty much agrees is taxing taxes generally like people can get like they don't get religious get pretty about charged it. about that they don't get religious eh, people get pretty religious about their like uh financial philosophy i think right like if, how much yeah, you think that that's true should pay taxes like you know it's like i think we saw that with trump's whole 750 dollars nonsense is there anything that, was, that people don't like get religious about very, that's know. a better question. Then <laughs> I feel like I feel like there there are things that are just sort there's of degrees like, though. There's degrees. Yeah, too. and there's stuff that everyone's kind of like on the same page about, and isn't that like I feel like marijuana legalization? Nobody's like that upset about it anymore. I'm still shocked. I know we did an episode of this like two years ago. I'm still shocked yeah. that hasn't happened because I bet if you like, it feels to me. I don't know. I'm not in this world, right? Like I'm not in the political realm, so I have no idea if this is true or not. To me, it feels like low hanging fruit. Dude, like, it would be a no like fucking like brainer you. for Trump to pass that with an executive order right now. Yeah, it's like, like, like you, you want to win over a bunch of centrist voters. Yeah. <laughs> well, and not even that. You can make an easy argument to both sides. Like one side, you say, like, forget about the, you know, incarceration for something that's 
uh, basically harmless, not harmless, but like not, uh, harmful and, you know, not any more harmful than alcohol, let's say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at a very minimum, right. You can just make that argument. So it's like, why are we putting these people in jail? You make the argument to the left there. And then to the right, you say, well, look at all the new tax revenue we're going to generate from, uh, from, uh, a, a drug basically. Right. Yeah. And like, we'll be more fiscally responsible and reduce the deficit and you know, whatever. And, and marijuana uh, is so crazy in the U S right now. It's like, I, I went to Seattle and I went to a dispensary and you walk in, it's like a fucking Apple store. It's cool. They've got, yeah, it's, cool. it's so I, cool. Yeah. And they're the like, so helpful. In and- in 2018, I, I had that experience too. And I was just like, I was like, this is, this is almost as cool. This is probably cooler than a bar. Like the way they had it. Oh yeah. But then like you come back to Texas and you've got to like find somebody to text and you got to like meet up in a public place. And like, everyone's got to make sure everyone else is cool. And it's like, how how is this the same country? <laughs> yep. It's so wild. I uh, I had a conversation. There's a company that I was talking to that's based in uh, France, and they do a lot of they basically do packaging for different industries. So like pharmaceuticals and food and con- consumer products and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy was saying how they like he was asking me actually about like how does marijuana work in the U.S. Because he's like we got a client <laughs> recently from Colorado, but then they said they only sell in Colorado, and I was very confused because I was like the U.S. is a big country. Why is this order so small? And uh, yeah, and I was just, I was trying to explain it to him, and he was so confused about what I was talking about. I was just like, yeah, yeah it's like legal there. Next too. Yeah, well, they are legal in Ann Arbor. I, I think, think they're right? decriminalized. Decriminalized. In- yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they might be legal for prescription use. I'm not 100%. It's like, it's so hard to keep track. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need like, there needs to be like an app. Like, can I do this in the place I'm staying? <laughs> right? Like, detects your location. You have like the choice of a few different, you know, all these different controversial behaviors, right? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> can I smoke weed in this particular spot? Uh, Nevada, <laughs> prostitution, good. Mushrooms, yep. bad. All right, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> I feel like that would be hard to make. Somebody should make that. That, that would be a hilarious, like not even an app, just like a, uh, a, a website. You call it like oh, the fun person's website. guide to the United States. And it's like yeah. a little color coded map. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That'd be cool. Texas, guns, good. Marijuana, bad. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, you get so confused going from one. I mean, it's, oh man, if you dive into like, like uh, gun laws, state to state, it's also super oh, yeah. interesting, right? It's like one thing will be legal in one state. One thing will be like legal in Virginia. You cross into Maryland or into DC and it's like, you're going to jail. Uh, I mean, it's hilarious <laughs> how easy it is to buy a gun here or, and to just like walk around with them. It's like, whenever I go to the range, you walk in, like nobody's wearing masks. Of course. I'm just like, do I need to check on my gun or thing? They're like, no, man, you're good. Just like go find a spot. It's like, <laughs> <or> you, <laughs> Have fun. you go to, you go to Cabela's and somebody basically just walks up and it's like, yeah, I'd want like that, you know, pump shotgun or whatever. And they pull it off the wall. They look at it for a sec. They go check out. Like you have to check ID and you have to sign a few things, but there's no like registration. There's no holding period. <laughs> if you want more on uh, this topic, we did an episode, uh, Riddle of the Gun. I, I actually uh, want to revisit that one. I want to. Yeah, I want to hear what we what we said. Sometimes we surprise ourselves. Well, and back when we did that episode, I owned no guns, and now I own three guns. So and you've had more experience now, and uh, I feel like yeah, also, know you know, in them. a weird way, that topic is not as religiously charged. Like, it, like it, it, it's gotten it less gets, intense. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's like at that time, I think it was much more charged. I'm not saying it's not charged now. It's definitely still charged, but it's like less it's i don't know how to describe it it's just less energy in that whole yeah yeah i also just wonder how much though of that is like 
our friend group and the people we're exposed to where it's like, yeah, I have a lot of friends possible. who hunt and like, I live in Texas and I'm just like exposed to that world a lot more than I was like in college or when I was living in New York. Right. It's like a very yeah, different, that's a good point. It's a different here. It's different. It's that. Well, yeah, it's definitely that. I think, I mean, the other part of it is I feel like people are less, uh, I mean, this is, this could be a cool episode if we did seeing like a state. Um, but generally, oh, yeah. generally I feel like right now, uh, one reason or another, like people are just less trusting of the state. And so like self-defense, I feel mm-hmm. like is more, uh, just at the forefront of people's mind. I don't know. This might just be, yeah. as you said, our own circles, but I've seen people who I know, like I've seen post in the past, anti-gun type of stuff. And now, uh, I think they own weapons. Like, I don't know for sure, but I get the sense that they do. Dude, I mean, <laughs> Texas has basically been sold out of guns and ammo for four months. Like yeah. everybody's getting them now. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it, yeah, that's one that I think is less charged, but yeah, there's certain, certain other areas like COVID just for one reason or another has become yeah. just a complete, because you can't have a logical discussion either on it with people. Well, and th- the other thing that, is definitely true too, is that everyone's getting different information feeds. That's a great point. That's a great, right. I think that's maybe the root of the problem for all of that, these issues. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is a big part of it where it's like people log onto Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and they're getting a feed that feeds into their biases and that reinforces mm-hmm. what they were already thinking about this stuff. And then they encounter someone who thinks something else and you've got this like righteous indignation about it. And like, there's not really the shared assumptions that you have. No, uh, as before. no. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw this a lot on my Twitter when I even like asked the question about hydroxychloroquine, right? I remember that. You told me about that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is a fairly benign question. Like I, I probably could have phrased it in a less like provocative manner, but still I was just sort of surprised by how divisive it was in the comments, like other people arguing with each other, not even necessarily directed at me. Right. But yeah, anyway. I remember, I remember seeing that. I remember you told me about that. I went and looked and yeah, it was very active comment section. <laughs> <laughs> Should we like actually talk about Get something from the, the book. book for the last 10 minutes here? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, that was, a, oh, that was an was epic, one epic tangent. Epic right? tangent. Uh, yeah. I feel like that's a like almost an episode in itself. We could, Pretty we could much. have, I don't know what, like if there's even a book tied to that, or if there's somebody who's talked about this lack of shared assumptions, I, I think between different tribes. Uh, yeah. I mean, that would be an interesting topic, but Back to the book and tangent. Um, so I think this is chapter six where I have, so there, the fossil fueled civilization. Did I skip a mm-hmm. whole chapter? Do we already uh, do five? I mean, we're going to no? have to skip. Yeah. But I thought this was interesting wrapping up points, but yeah. 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 So this was, I thought a really good one just because um, it ties actually into something to, from scale. So uh, I'll read this from, from, from the book. It says, when in 1900, a Great Plains farmer held the reins of six large horses while plowing his wheat field, he controlled with considerable physical exertion, perched on a steel seat and often enveloped in dust, no more than five kilowatts of animate power. A century later, his great grandson sitting high above the air or high above the ground (laughs) in the air conditioned comfort of his tractor cabin controlled effortlessly more than 250 kilowatts of diesel engine power. Uh, And I thought that was like, I mean, just look at the difference between five kilowatts to 250 kilowatts. And then in that same amount of time, you go from uh, a coal fired locomotive. So from 1900 uh, going at close to hundred kilometers an hour commanded one megawatt of steam power, which was like the maximum performance, I guess they could get from stoking coal by the year 2000. So 100 years later, 
pilots of a Boeing 747 retracing the transcontinental route 11 kilometers aloft could choose an auto mode for a large part of the journey as four gas turbines developed up up to about 120 megawatts uh, and the plane flew at 900 kilometers an hour. That's crazy. And that's in a hundred years. Like, so to me that brought like a speed of innovation, right. That happened. I'm sure if you redid that from 2000 to, uh, I mean, I don't know what, you know, the current state of the art is on planes, but, uh, in the 20 years, I don't know if, you know, that's a lot different than what it was in 2000, but at least from 1900 to 2000, that's an epic change. Seriously. Dude, Boom Arrow just uh, released I saw that. their prototype. I'm so excited for that to actually like that looks thing. super cool. Yeah, that looks super cool. For uh, anybody who's not aware, Boom Arrow is a new supersonic jet company that just uh, released their first prototype jet. Why do we do this? This is not a tangent. I I promise because it ties back to the nuclear energy thing. Why do we do this? That after as a, as the species, like after one high profile accident or mistake, like we just abandon an idea. Right. Like, so you had Chernobyl and, and uh, three mile Island with nuclear. And then we just were kind of like, Oh, that's too dangerous. Let's uh, let's not do that. And then uh, with um, the Concord, right. There was like a couple accidents and we we're just like, yeah, we're not going to do supersonic jets like that anymore. Uh, so we- I actually, I did some digging on this and what I found is that uh, the Concord wasn't killed by the accidents. It oh, was killed okay. by the reduction in flying after nine 11. Oh, interesting. So they just didn't have enough business to keep Yeah, they didn't have enough worthwhile. business to stay alive. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I guess in my mind it was the accidents, but I guess that's not uh that's not true. Maybe it's just the timing of that like combined with 9/11. Uh Yeah. Just like was that was the end of it. Yeah, low passenger numbers. But no, I'm surprised nobody's rising. tried since then. Maybe it just wasn't necessary. Or well, I th- I f- or here's the other thing. It's kind of like a uh not a monopoly, but like an oligopoly with the airlines. Right. It's not like there's a ton of competition. I mean, there is a ton of competition between them, but they're all playing with like the same variables. Right. Uh, it's not like one plane design is radically like one airline has a radically like a UFO shaped, like a, <laughs> like a uh, UFO shaped airplane. And the other one has like a normal looking airplane. Um, so maybe there's just wasn't like, it just wasn't a vector they were innovating on. I think the other reason, honestly, is that there just hasn't been much hardware innovation in the last like there hasn't been much a good big point. hardware innovation in the last 10, 20 years, probably because if you're like a super talented engineer, you can make a lot more money, a lot faster building apps and software. Yeah. Right. So there's like, there's, there's a lot more too. talent going into that. I mean, how many really impressive hardware companies are there from the last 10 years? I can think of like Apple, SpaceX, Tesla. Yeah. Actually, that's probably where the most impressive... <laughs> Example is, is like, I don't feel like I'm even being facetious here. Like I have a yeah. hard time naming many of them, but then you think of like impressive software companies and the list just goes like on and on and on and yeah. on and on. That's a really um, good point. So I bet there's just like, hasn't been much engineering talent looking at it. I feel like, I, I hope that we're moving back in that direction. I feel like, I also feel like Musk has kind of sparked a resurgence in interest in like big engineering challenges. Yeah. Um, from the stuff yeah, that which, they're doing. That's a really good point. Actually, now that I think about it, I can't name it anymore than the ones you just named. Like in terms of yeah. mainstream, like everybody knows them. Yeah. That's a it's good a point. Billion dollar hardware companies. From I feel like billions even too low of a threshold, right? It's like,
Because you could yeah. say billion dollar threshold would be like Nest would count under that. And I don't that's a good point. That's not that really impressive. count Nest. That's, yeah. I mean, and that to me is like a software company. It looks like they didn't have some crazy innovation in like you know in their device camera was, technology. Yeah, right? it was more like, like the user friendliness and yeah, I mean that was Yeah, connecting it to your phone, right? Like I don't even you know, like Uber's not really a hardware company to me. It's a software company, right? They made an awesome app for triangulating like drivers. Yeah. I mean, the first generation of 3D printing companies was interesting. I think they've, uh, they were a little early. I think, I think we'll actually see more in 3D printing in the, I mean, that's just a random prediction, but like 10 to 20 years, I think that'll become more like not saying in 10 to 20, I mean like in over the next 10 to 20 years, I think that'll be much more interesting um, than it is right now. Just especially with like space uh, travel, like really starting to I think in the next decade, that'll really become more in the forefront. And then that's going to require a lot of hardware innovation. Uh, Definitely. Maybe that'll be the spark. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think once space is opened up more, we're going to see a lot more companies in that area. Yeah. I mean, just stuff like asteroid mining and all of that potential is like pretty neat. So, yeah. And it just requires a lot of new stuff that we don't really have right now. So yeah, I feel like building this whole software layer for the internet to enable doing this other hardware stuff was like a worthwhile project, right? It's, I'm not necessarily criticizing, you know, innovation over the last 20 years. It's just like, it's all been like in our phones basically. Right. Right. And whereas if you look at, especially from, from the book, like some of the stuff that he was talking about, like the massive, companies that were created through the infrastructure involved in transforming energy. Uh, like he has a short list that I had highlighted, which was his like examples of global companies. Uh, and he's talking about in energy are like Schlumberger, Halliburton, Sapium, Transocean, Baker for oil field services, Caterpillar, Caterpillar, Komatsu, Volvo, Hitachi, Lieber for heavy construction machinery, GE, Siemens, Alstom, Weir Allen, and Elliott for large steam turbines, and Boeing and Airbus for jet airliners. Like that was the 20th century, I feel like, right? Like developing yeah. that infrastructure. And I wonder, like, this is a, like, a, I don't know if this is like how to wrap up the book, but this is a thought is like, I wonder, you know, 50, 100 years from now, are, you know, Google, Apple, are these going to be like sort of the table stakes type of companies? Like, you know, nobody really views, um, like I'm not saying what they do, like let's say Chevron or Exxon or like Halliburton or any of these types of companies. I'm not saying what they do is, you know, easy or like not important. Like it's obviously, as we just talked about the oil infrastructure, it kind of powers the world, but it's not where like the breakthrough innovation is coming from. Right. And I wonder if sort of like, you know, the Apple, Google type of companies of the world are like just, just like a necessary stage. Right. And it's like, they're still going to be around but are they going to be at, you know, sort of the forefront of things? I know they're trying. I just don't know, you know, is that, is there something different about them or are they like the next evolution of the same, uh, same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I am hopeful that we see more hardware innovation just because yeah. it's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, and we live in the hardware world, <laughs> right? Yeah. As much as we feel like we live in our computers. I mean, um, I've loved getting to do more stuff in the real world in the last yeah. year or two, instead of just like pushing pixels. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there, I think more and more people, when you sort of rediscover that, you find you really enjoy it. Uh, and not saying like, I mean, we, I don't know about you. I spent a lot of time on the computer too. So it's yeah. not that like, I'm not spending time there, but uh, yeah, we live in the real world. So it's, uh, <laughs> we don't really live in the computer just yet. Maybe someday. 
Maybe someday. All right. Should we wrap it up there? Yeah. I'm just trying to see, is there uh, anything else? I think, yeah, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, we pretty much we covered some off. parts of it covered, <laughs> it's a long book with a lot of ideas that you, you also just go check out yeah um, we didn't even really talk about like coal and all that stuff but uh you can check it out i think it's in my opinion a really really interesting book uh, it is super it interesting definitely took me a long took me a long time to read though i, I started while we were finishing up scale so it, that was right. at least four weeks ago uh, and i finished last night by the way <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> talk about like yeah last minute but uh yeah, it, well, i mean so i wasn't i did that college see. energy right like i do that too right? yep. it's like all right <laughs> i know when it's due so i'm gonna get it done just exactly i mean i didn't speed through it because i i realized pretty early on like if i did i wasn't gonna like retain anything because it was yeah. it's yeah it's dense from that perspective um yeah, you can check out the book uh obviously if you enjoyed the episode share it with your friends post about it um subscribe it's a nice show. review subscribe let bill gates yeah. know that we did an episode that's true this. maybe he'll come on for the next one yeah <laughs> he doesn't have much going on he could probably use or he maybe he needs a break from vaccines and stuff he can there we go talk about energy yeah. um talk about energy yeah. and vaccines it'll be exciting yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would actually be pretty cool uh, actually would be it would be that'd be a cool topic to interview him on like yeah. vaccine development yeah just uh oh man that, that that's super cool i feel like in like a year we'll know so much more about vaccine development than we do right now because imagine yeah, right? if these vaccines work like that would mean we can develop a vaccine in that short amount of time which is uh, yeah just a i think we talked about that last time on, on the scale episode like that's kind of like the four minute mile barrier right like right Right. Like nobody could run a four minute mile until everybody could not everybody, but it became like table stakes basically, um, to do it, but it wasn't possible till it was done. It's very, very strange, but I feel like that would happen. That could happen, not will happen, but it could happen with, um, drug development and vaccine development too, which would be just like game, like a huge game changer for, for the world. Basically, if drug development was a year or a year or two, instead of 10 years, years. which is kind of the, yeah average right now yeah i mean it it would be good and bad though i mean it'd be good for stuff like this where it's like because of the type of vaccine it is it's fairly low risk for you know things going wrong but it's like if something you know if lipitor got pushed through in a year instead of 10 yeah. years right it's like yeah but i think like therapy took 10 something. years and it still fucked up a bunch of people that's I mean. a good point that's a good point but yeah but i mean there's like stuff for you know alzheimer's and things that are just like you know not there's just like nothing out there right now Right. Uh, and you could push that through in three years, let's say instead of 10, like you probably just saved not a whole generation, but you saved a lot of people probably with that. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It'd be interesting. I'm curious, like, I don't even know like what the reason is it takes 10 years. Like I, I I'm, is it, re- is it regulatory? Is it si- like the science takes that long? And then what went different this time, uh, you know, to enable it to move faster, but you know, we don't even know if they work yet. So that right. Right. Remain to be seen. Remains to be seen. Alrighty. We uh oh what book are we doing next? Have we decided? Okay. <laughs> we have not. Uh we can't tell people what to read. Well, okay, how about this? Let's pick on one. Well, actually, when are we gonna release this? It'll probably come out like tomorrow or something. Okay, so tomorrow close. would be uh tomorrow would be Thursday. Let's decide by Monday. Let's give like let's get let's give people like a few days for suggestions too. I have some ideas, which I'll text you. Cool. Uh, but uh yeah, if you uh, if you I'd, have an idea for a book. Hit us up. Here's on, the call to action. You have to follow us on Twitter. 
exactly. find out what the next book is. Yep. Because we don't do the Patreon anymore. So you have to, true. <laughs> you have to <laughs> um, so I'm at the rail Neil S and I am at Nat Eliason. We will see you there and we'll see you next episode.